Uh, how can we best understand the Ukraine-Russia-West uh, triangular relationship? Uh, I would say it's important not to deny agency to actors such as Ukraine, yet at the same time we cannot deny the tendency of the United States as well to manipulate and using proxies. So to discuss this and other topics, we're joined by the excellent Gordon Hahn, which is a very renowned author and researcher on Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia and the North Caucasus. Uh, welcome, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Glenn and Alexander. And yeah, welcome, Alexander, as well. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I thought before we address the issue of Ukraine, uh, we could uh, start with the topic of jihadism in Chechnya and yeah, the wider North Caucasus. Uh, because with uh, great frequency, uh, at least recently, Putin brings up the claim that the United States uh, supported uh, jihadi movements in Chechnya in the 1990s and 2000s to destabilize, weaken, fragment, even break up Russia. Uh, and we'll remember after the Beslan attacks in 2004, in which more than 300 Russians were killed, uh, most of them schoolchildren. Uh, Putin was also very vocal about the involvement of NATO powers. Uh, now, the reason this is an interesting bringing to the current conflict is that Putin uh, seems to link this to the conflict in Ukraine in terms of uh, the tendency to fight Russia through proxies. So again, as a leading researcher on the North Caucasus, I was uh, thought we can not fact check, but uh, they discuss the, the allegations of Putin. So how much of this terrorism is homegrown and how much of it has been supported or financed or instigated by Washington? Um, well, first we should mention that, you know, the, the jihadi terrorism has largely disappeared from the North Caucasus because um, most of the jihadists uh, fled to Syria and Iraq around beginning around 20, um, 2013, 2014, or even late 2012. I can't remember now. I haven't been doing research on the North Caucasus for a while. I have two books on the subject, so if anybody wants to be, be more precise, they can refer to the books. I think it was around 2013 they began to head to uh, Syria and Iraq. Um, in terms of uh, West uh, U.S. involvement, um, I was told by someone, I'm, I'm going to do a Alexander McCurris now, I'm not going to mention the person who told me, but it was someone who uh, is sufficiently uh, well-informed about uh, things uh, involving Washington, D.C. and intelligence. And he told me that um, there was definitely a CIA presence. This is in the, I would say, late 90s, maybe early 2000s uh, in the North Caucasus. But um, person had this person had no idea what, what they were doing, whether they were just observing or doing or, or um, engaging in uh, certain activities to support uh, the, uh, the what then was called the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria before in 2007 it became the so-called Caucasus Emirate uh, organization. So originally it was the Chechen uh, Republic of Ichkeria, which declared independence um, uh, from Russia. War started in 1995. Um, there were four years in in terms of comparing this to Ukraine. There were about four years. There were uh, four years of um, negotiations between Russia and Grozny between 91 and 95 before Russia actually took military action, which would have been a good model for the Ukrainians to use when the Donbass declared independence uh, and maybe try negotiating first, which they didn't do. Uh, anyway, and then the uh, 
uh, at the time, Al Qaeda was the main global jihad, uh, jihadi element, and they began to infiltrate into the, uh, the Chechen Republic of Ishkeria. And eventually, in 2002, there was a major after they were generally routed on the battlefield uh, by um, Russian forces. They went sort of they went underground, and at that point, the jihadists reached pretty, the jihadists within the organization reached parity with the you know the radical nationalists. And by 2007, the Caucasus Emirate was uh, declared itself a full-fledged jihadi organization. Mm-hmm. And from then on, you just can go if you can get, get access to this, the old sites. They're 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 very much detailed in my um, in my two books, um, especially in the later book, the Caucasus Emirate. Um, we're entirely jihadi um, propaganda organs and recruitment recruitment organs. Uh, Quoting all the invest the the, the well known uh, jihadi ideologists, the O ideologists around the world, including Bin Laden, but many others, Mokhtasi from uh, Egypt and so on, so on. So many, many um, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, so many of these. Um, so it's a completely jihadi organization allied with Al Qaeda and then the Islamic State. Um, the only evidence that uh, it's circumstantial evidence, if you recall, after nine eleven. They began to crack down on this uh, Saudi-tied organization in the United States and presumably in other countries called the Benevolent Society, which was sending money to Afghanistan and to the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. About about 45 percent, I estimated from looking at the documents, um, uh, 45 percent of the funds that the Benevolent Society um, collected went to the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. The rest of it, presumably all of it, went to Afghanistan. So one could hypothesize, I don't know for sure, and I'm just making a, a suggestion that um, before 9-11, the CIA knew about this operation, um, but didn't do anything about it. Uh, and then after 9-11, decided to crack down. And then during the hearings and the investigation into 9-11, uh, uh, this information was released at 45% of the uh, uh, money and supplies, things like uh, night vision glasses and so forth, were going to the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. Mm-hmm. And it's an organization that was um, had at least branches in the United States, if not was not based in the United States. So it was a, basically a Saudi sort of laundering institution for laundering money and funds to to the Middle East, uh, to uh, Afghanistan and Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. Um, Another piece of circumstantial evidence is the um, police, the complete blanket denial throughout Washington, D.C. Uh, that there was any connection between Al-Qaeda and the Chechen Republic, which area, then Al-Qaeda and the Caucasus Emirate, then the Islamic State and the Caucasus Emirate, even though even though on their on the Caucasus Emirate websites and the, uh, it was evident um, very evident that they were they had ties to all these groups. And that there were fighters, some Chechen fighters and Dagestani fighters, once we had the Caucasus Emirate, were fighting in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. And then, then there was a virtual deluge of fighters to, to the latter uh, <clears throat> around 2013, as I mentioned earlier. So all these institutions in D.C., I had contact with some of them, um, were very uh, very much in the jihadi denial, denial business as far as the Caucasus Emirate. Is concerned. In fact, if you go back and look at 9-11, you'll notice that one of the reasons why 
they never investigated uh, the 20th hijacker. And if they had in- investigated him, they might have uncovered the entire plot before 9-11. Was that the only reason given, I believe it was from the, by the FBI to the CIA, or any reason to check on this guy, or the CIA to FBI to check on um, uh, this guy, uh, I forget his name, who's training in, um, I believe, Minnesota to fly to fly planes. Was that his, his connection? The only connection, supposedly, to the Caucasus, uh, to the Chechen Republic area, was through Hatab, and Hatab was someone who was an associate of Al Qaeda, and they claimed that, the, and they denied this. The, the DC and and various uh, elements were saying that Hatab had no connections or was not one of the one of the promoters of this idea was this professor from I think believe it was the University University of Massachusetts named Brian Glenn Williams. And he was making such statements. Uh, he was uh, making statements such as um, <laughs> that uh, the uh, ideologists of, and this is as late as 2012, 2013. You know, when you could go to a, one of these caucus member websites, whether it was the Dagestani, the Chechen, the Kabardino Balkari, or the English uh, site of the caucus Emirate, and there would be you know, videos of Osama bin Laden, videos and lectures of Mokhtasi, and on various, various uh sheikhs ideologists uh, theologists of, of the global jihadi movement on their sites um they had established a structure and an institution with the caucasus Emirate had that mirrored this the the model of al-qaeda and then the uh islamic Emirate. this guy brian gill williams is going around telling people that uh uh the uh, ideology of the Caucasus Emirate was closer to the American founding fathers <laughs> than to than to uh, than to the global jihad. Um, then it turned out uh, in twenty when, if you'll recall, there was the Boston Marathon attack back in uh, I think it was twenty thirteen, April twenty thirteen. It turned out that the the, the younger uh, Tsarnaev, I forget his first name now. Was actually a student of Brian Glenn, Glenn Williams, who was probably, you know, repeating this sort of view of the Chechens being, you know, the Thomas Jeffersons and George Washingtons of the future, and of course that might have helped uh, radicalize him. Not to mention their trip to Dagestan um, and uh, and Chechnya back in uh, mm-hmm. back, uh, prior to their carrying out an attack. Another piece of circumstantial evidence is that. If you recall, there was this guy, uh, I forget his first name now, now but he was a Georgian, Chechen Georgian, the Kis, the ethnic Kis, which is what the ethnic Chechens in Georgia are, are called, a guy by the name of Batirashvili, and he participated in the Georgian train and equip program, you know, under under NATO. And then he uh defected in, from the Georgian army and went to fight in the North Caucasus. I don't think he was in the North Caucasus very long. And then, according to his own uh, testimony, his own writings uh, on um, jihadi sites, uh, he was dispatched by uh, Doku Umarov, the emir of the Caucasus Emirate, to go fight in Syria and Iraq. And he eventually became one of the leading uh, actors in uh, the Islamic State. He was eventually killed, I forget, forget back in 2019 or 2020. So one could... Think conspiratorially. I'm not saying it's not possible. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit of that. This guy um, may maybe was dispatched under this program to do precisely this, though it seems unlikely. Um, then we have the you know the hijra, the the the, the flood of 
of the Caucasus fighters in 2013, 2014, but to Syria and Iraq. And he was sort of the leader of that whole group, though they were they were broken up into different um, factions and some fighting with Al-Qaeda loyal groups, some fighting with ISIS loyal groups. Uh, and eventually the Caucasus Emirate became, declared itself, dissolved itself and became a, a vilayata, a government of the Islamic State. And since then, they really haven't been all that active. So that's basically, um, I, I think that, that when, you know, perhaps <laughs> perhaps Putin has access to Russian intelligence, mm-hmm. which tells him something else. But as far as I, I know, I, I, I've never seen any evidence that would show mm-hmm. the United States was actively backing um, them. The one one other final point is that I've never seen a denial. Mm. Never seen a denial by anyone from the Bush administration, the Obama administration, about this. So mm. that's that perhaps is indicative of something. But other than that, you know, I have nothing more to say really on that. I I, I agree. I mean, I think that Putin is like so many people do. He's probably almost certainly greatly underestimating the level of agency of the people in the Northern Caucasus um, mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, I, I'm fairly confident there were a lot of people in the Northern Caucasus at that time, firstly during the Chechen nationalist phase and then mm-hmm. subsequently during the jihadi phase who were acting. They were acting because people in the CIA were telling them to. They acted because that was, you know, consistent with their own beliefs. But I can remember, and this is, I mean, I was living in Britain at the time. I was actually in Moscow at the time of the Bislan affair. And then I came Mm -hmm. from Moscow to London. And the thing that always struck me, this is in the 1990s as well, when we were supposed to be having good relations with the Russians, mm-hmm. there's always this very strong sympathy, a very strongly expressed sympathy in Britain, in the United States, first with the Chechen nationalists, then obviously continued later when it became um, a jihadi uh, movement. And absolutely, as you correctly say, strong denial that it was in fact a jihadi movement, constant (laughs) pressure, badgering on the Russians, negotiate with these people, which is in effect a way of saying, you know, give them their independence or withdraw from the Northern Caucasus in the way that they want. And, you know, I can completely understand why, if you're in Moscow, and we mustn't overestimate the skill of Russian intelligence and all of these people, but they're seeing all this constant sympathy, this language that's being expressed in Washington, in London. And they're mm-hmm. saying to themselves, these people fundamentally are supporting these uh, people, these these jihadi fighters in uh, the Caucasus. Absolutely. And of course, if you're talking about London, well, there was a time when there was quite a little community of people here from Chechnya who came to London, uh, were, you know, very active politically. They would, you know, have speaker meetings. They would be uh, involved in all of these things. The Russians in those days were trying to extradite them. Extradition requests were consistently rejected by the London authorities and, and the London courts, it must be said. And again, one can very easily understand why this all began to create a certain impression amongst the Russians that, you know, this isn't just sympathy for these people. This is active involvement in what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can remember uh, Zakayev, Ahmed Zakayev, 
who was uh, based in London, and he was uh, the foreign minister of the Chechen Republic of Hichkeri and then found refuge in London. And he always used to uh, organize these demonstrations with uh, that actress, I forget her name, the British actress. Vanessa Redgrave. Yes. And um, uh, it, there were denials. Uh, one At some point, the, the question arose whether there was a denial that, that he had any connection to the Caucasus Emirate, that yes, okay, he was part of the Chechen Republic of Echkeria, which was a nationalist organization. Of course, that was not entirely true. It was at, 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 at some key point um, uh, partially a jihadist organization. But Sakai was did have a record of being opposed to the jihadists. But then the question arose, and then the question arose: Well, does he have any ties to the present organization, the Caucasus Emirate? And it turned out that on his on his own website. He was publishing reports directly from the Caucasus Emirate websites and actually, you know, when an attack occurred, for example, uh, supporting the result of the attack. So normally that would be seen, you know, in, in that in that period of time as being support for uh, jihadi terrorism. Uh, um, but of course, they were denying, still denying the jihadi <laughs> essence of the of the Caucasus Emirate. Then there was a sus- suspicious development in my own career again this is only a hypothesis but i constantly ran up against um you know any kind of you know i ran i get criticism against um uh my views on the caucasus uh emirate and so forth and uh, at some point um a scholar from russia named sergey markadonov received a uh a period of uh, uh fellowship at the center for CSIS, where Brzezinski at the time was, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski time was a, now I think already a honorary senior uh, fellow, emeritus of some sort. And um, he, they organized a conference on the North Caucasus. And and I was suddenly invited to Washington, D.C. to discuss this. And I was absolutely, I was absolutely shocked. And then I figured out why, because, well, it was a Russian who organized the conference? And um, every there were about different speakers talking about different aspects of the North Caucasus, and I discussed the jihadi element in the North Caucasus. And then they published a report, and everything that I said was discounted or ignored in the report. So I contacted the head of the Russia Eurasia program at the time, who where Markadonov was uh, had his fellowship. Uh, the director at the time was Andy Cutchins, and uh, said, you know. What's going on here? Uh, everything I said is ignored, and um, he asked me some for some proof of some things that were uh, rejected in the report. And I sent them. One of them was um, that there were uh, direct ties between Basayev support, uh, moral support for uh, Basayev, the Chechen, the Chechen Republic, which carried up uh, one of the leaders at the time and a major terrorist, the one who carried out the. Uh, uh, the 2004 uh, incident in in, in uh, south in uh, North Ossetia that uh, Glenn just mentioned, and um, uh, they uh, the report basically the, the he said okay fine I convinced I convinced him that there were ties I, I sent to him uh, seven obituaries uh, in Arabic written about Basayev after he had been killed so it's demonstrating that the uh, Arabic language obituaries published by Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, and and people like them. Um, so he said, "Okay, Gordon, let, let's have you do a report, 
you'll come to D.C. I'll pay you some money for the report and you'll give a talk. And I said, OK, fine. So I, I wrote a counter report. And on the eve, literally the eve, before I flew to Washington, D.C., he calls me up and says, well, there's going to be a, a colonel there to do to, to, to be uh, American colonel from the southern uh, from the central command based in uh, Florida who had written a book. I forget his name now. He wrote a also wrote a book on the Caucasus on the North Caucasus and the jihadists there. It wasn't a bad book, actually. Um, and he was going to be a commentator. I said, OK, fine, because I knew what I was saying was absolutely uh, <laughs> precise. And I had no problem having somebody commentate. I had no fears. So went there and he commentated. And the essence of his comment, comment, uh, commentary was, um, I, I agree with everything that Gordon says. And I disagree with everything that Gordon <laughs> says. A jihadist has to have you know, a reason to wake up in the morning. You know, well, I explained uh, <laughs> uh, the reason why they wake up, wake up in the morning and carry out jihadist attacks is written on their websites because they use those websites to recruit people in order to do those things. <laughs> you know, so there's no mystery here. It's quite obvious what's going on. So that was the essence. And then I uh, shortly after the events in Ukraine, um, I was suddenly got a, a letter in the mail uh, saying that my uh, my 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 own fellowship, temporary non-resident fellowship at CSIS, which began after, uh, with uh, the original conference or shortly thereafter, I can't remember now, had been uh, terminated. And um, this was right after the Olympics, right? The day. Uh, the day of the uh, Maidan revolt was on, I think it was the first or la last day, I believe, of the Olympics in uh, Beijing, right? And um, uh, it began to enter my head that maybe what was going on here is that suddenly in Washington, particularly someone like Brzezinski, who had been in on the board of an organization called Free Chechnya and so forth, maybe the idea was that suddenly they decided to ignore their own jihadi denial for the period of the Olympics. So the Gordon Hahn would be writing about all his jihadism, right? <laughs> right? And this would be scaring people off from the Olympics, right? And we could use this to discuss uh, Russian imperialism in the North Caucasus and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the Olympics ended, they got rid of me because I was no longer useful. Mm -hmm. That's that's a hypothesis I have. Uh, well, don't know uh, <laughs> a very plausible one. I just want, because, you know, we, we, Glenn, we'll, we'll be going over to Ukraine in a moment. But I mean, the fact is... In that period, especially after 2001, after the events of 9-11, you know, we were hostile to jihadism everywhere, except in one place, which was the Northern Caucasus. We were very, continued to be very sympathetic. I remember at the time of the Bislan affair, there's actually people in Britain making excuses for it. And one has to ask, why? Why this constant hostility, this axiomatic assumption that somebody who's fighting the Russians, whatever they are and whatever they do, we have to be somehow sympathetic to them. And mm -hmm. if you are, again, a Russian, if you're a Russian official, if you're, you know, uh, uh, Putin and Petrushev and someone like that, I can completely understand why you're saying to yourself, there is a continuum. These people fundamentally don't like us. They are against us. Even if, you know, we are, you know, we perhaps accept that they weren't as involved in the Northern Caucasus as, you know, we think they were. 
the fact is, at the end of the day, they were sympathetic to it. They were sympathetic Absolutely. to a violent terrorist organization launching attacks deep inside our country, aiming to break up our country. And fundamentally, viscerally, that is what they want to see happen. Right. And there was blowback, right? There was blowback yeah. because the, the, the very uh, jihadi movement that we were saying wasn't a jihadi movement actually influenced the Sarnaya brothers who then blew up our Boston Marathon. Um, but and this sort of thing, this extremism denial when it comes to anybody extremist group that's fighting Russia, you know, has a long history. You know, some people might go back to you know the Austrians and the Poles supporting. In fact, some people argue helping the formation of you of Ukrainian national separate Ukrainian national identity and even even language and certainly uh, nationalism going back uh, to the late to the late nineteenth century. Um, but we see a parallel in, in, uh, today in Ukraine, right? It's the same thing. <laughs> We're denying that there are neo-fascists in Ukraine, that there are ultra-nationalists in Ukraine. They don't exist. Uh, if they do, well, they're, they're, they're the small in number and they're justified because of the history of Russian imperialism in Ukraine and so forth. And so it's the same exact argument in, in, to, to, to justify another extremism. And one wonders whether someday the, this Ukrainian, you know, when this Ukrainian thing eventually turns very, very bad, which it's it's beginning to already. I mean, if it, uh, uh, a worst case scenario could be, you know, a, a quagmire with various elements that have already found refuge in the West, greatly embittered by the destruction of Ukraine and the lack of the abandonment of Ukraine by the West, uh, turning turning around, turning guns around and engaging in terrorism uh, in, in Europe. In order to pressure governments to uh, uh, support uh, some kind of Ukraine underground or Ukrainian partisan army that's fighting uh, some remnants that are fighting the Russian army, if the Russia is go forced to go to the Dnieper or who knows how far. So it's an old pattern. It's, it's a very s sad pattern. People don't seem to learn over the centuries, do they? Yeah, I um, yeah I did want to switch a bit more yeah towards uh, Ukraine because uh, while well, in Chechnya it's it's more unclear obscure what's uh, what has been going on. Um, it's uh, in in Ukraine it's been more overt. Uh, I remember George Freeman Friedman, the uh, uh, yeah former head of uh, uh, oh what is it called uh, Stratfor. He, yeah, he he called this the most uh, overt coup in modern history, which was I thought was an appropriate description. But of course, there's a, uh, this goes back uh, way before. I'm, I'm thinking back even in, in during the Rose Revolution of uh, 2004. At that point, at that point uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, yeah, the new president of uh, Ukraine uh, called then uh, the Rose Revolution, what he called the European Union, at least the godfathers of the Rose Revolution because of their assistance uh, assistance uh, within this to bring him uh, to to bring Yushchenko to power that is and um, again we, we saw then over the next years you know very eagerly trying to make this split with Russia permanent by uh, yeah by by orienting the economy popular opinion culture more to the west and of course it you know, we we lost Ukraine then in 2010 as they had a democratic election, and uh, I remember back in those days, Newsweek called uh, Yushchenko the most unpopular leader in the world. He had like a 2.7 percent approval rating. So, 
is uh, quite an achievement anyways so then we had, then they had the Yushchenko no sorry then they elected uh, Yanukovych he was you know democratically elected uh, acknowledged by the OSCE a free and fair election uh, and then you know we saw these reports coming from NATO where they were quite upset because they said oh this is very problematic now you know less than 20% of Ukrainians want to join NATO uh, you know the neutrality is in their law uh, you know how are we going to develop our relationship <laughs> this is a, you know how are we going to help them uh, to you know want to join us and uh, and of course i think that's when uh, uh, we came to the 2013 the when the EU pitched this association agreement in which uh, uh, yeah, they were largely, you know, pressured, you know, choose us or the West or, or the Russians. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, when they made the wrong decisions, uh, very openly, again, very overtly beginning to instigate protests and riots in the streets. I remember then, uh, you know, the Polish Prime Minister Tusk, he was suggesting, you know, we should uh, fund all of these movement, movements, these people rising up, we should give them millions of euros, this has to be financed, you have EU uh, leaders uh, coming to Kiev to stand on stage calling for the downfall of the government and replace it. I mean, they're very, very open, uh, very much in the open. And then uh, uh, even when the Ukrainians and Russians offer this trilateral agreement, you know, let's not force Ukraine to choose between East and West, uh, you know, the EU shut down the Ukrainians right away. It's like, no, 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 we have uh, one deal. You, you, you choose. The former prime minister of uh, uh, Sweden, he called this, uh, you know, a civilizational choice. It's West mm. Russia. So it's, you know, again, <laughs> it, it couldn't possibly be more overt. And then, you know, we haven't even come to, you know, Newland, and they're not just their cookies, but, you know, they were caught actually on tape uh, mm. uh, on the phone, which was leaked, of course, but in which she and Piat, the American ambassador, openly discussed, I think it was two weeks before they had been able to topple Yanukovych. You know, how should he put more pressure on them? Who should go in the new government? Who should be held out of the new government? You know, how are we going to make this whole thing legitimate? How can we use the UN? Everything on tape like this. It seems a very open and, and shut case. And uh, yet, if we come to today, it's almost addressed as if it was a conspiracy theory, something that never happened. And uh, I even, um, even on the Maidan, uh, you had... Uh, as yeah, you just suggested, uh, the the, the right-wing or even fascist groups were quite, uh, you know, dominant. Uh, you had the leader of that group, uh, the fascist group uh, C14, where he even makes the statement that, uh, you know, yes, we were a minority on Maidan, but the majority of influence came from us because we were there fighting the government. And But even they were quite open. The leader of C14 openly saying, listen, the West isn't trying to help us. They're, you know, they want to use us. They see us mm -hmm. as an instrument against Russia. You know, but we're happy to be this because, you know, we love killing. This is what's their the argument. So mm -hmm. it's just, it, it just baffles me sometimes that you can have all this in the open, all this very overt influence. And still, if it's put out there, one can very quickly be accused of not giving an agency to the Ukrainians, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my question to you as well. Like what We, we shouldn't fail to include this, but uh, agency of which Ukrainians? Again, the, in the East and the West, very, very different uh, different people. So mm -hmm. how, how, how do you see the run-up to Maidan, uh, both the, the local elements as well as the uh, as well as uh, foreign influence? Well, I see that basically it's, uh, I agree with the base, your overall account um, uh, completely. 
uh, I think it's a it's a result, right? Of it's 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 all fairly fairly obvious to anyone who wants to look at this objectively, right? Um, it's a re- result of the West after the Cold War trying to maximize its power, not being satisfied with being um, uh, the main the the main guy on the block, the big the big boy on the block. No, they want to have they have to control everyone. They have to subsume all the other forces and elements under their near full control or full control. Um, and that's that's the purpose of expanding NATO, of, exp- of expanding the European Union. The European Union is basically sort of a foot in the door. And on average, you know, a country gets the uh, association uh, uh, membership, uh, the association agreement uh, signed. Eight years later, they're a member of NATO. So they're European, they become a European Union uh, associate agreement uh, uh, plan member, and on the, they're on the road to EU membership. Eight years later, they're members of NATO. So Russia sees this. They see they, they see what's going on. They see Russia uh, NATO expansion going on, and uh, this is a it's a, it's a, you know we go we talk about uh, look at this from a realist perspective, right? Uh, John Mearsheimer, who's the, probably the most uh, erudite and articulate uh, and well known now spokesman of the realist position which explains a great deal of this uh right from the from the russian perspective it's not in the self-interest of this great power to have uh perhaps world history's most powerful military bloc all along its western border it's just not in its interest it doesn't matter if the name of that country is russia china paraguay united states so there, that's one element. But the other element I think that needs to be added into that is the the historical cultural element. You know, it would be one thing if uh, Russia had a history of ideal relationships with with the West, and the West uh, never tried to intervene or influence Russia or invade Russia or elements from the West invade Russia and so forth. That would be fine. But in fact, the Western-Russian relationship is probably it could one could argue it's the most troubled relationship on the planet historically. Uh, I haven't done a comparative study of that, but one could make that argument. But it'd probably be interesting for someone. Glenn would be a good person to do do a, do this kind of a study. So we look at the the way the Russians look at their history, and it's a fairly accurate interpretation of what they've experienced through several centuries of interaction with the West. It's been um, at best intermittent, and uh, one could call it a repeated and almost continuous pattern of the West trying to either influence, interfere in Russian politics, uh, intervene in Russian politics through intel operations, military operations. If we go back to the the Polish, uh, the the smut, the smuta, uh, backed by the Vatican and carried out by the the Poles in the early seventeenth uh, century to over to place a a pretender on the Russian throne, uh, creating you know, chaos in Russia and millions of deaths and famine and so forth and so on. And then followed by two Polish invasions, a Swedish invasion. And then we talk about Napoleon and Hitler. It doesn't take it doesn't take uh, a genius to understand that there, this attitude in Russia is uh, is justified. And when the Cold War ended, and you had a, an already beleaguered Russia, economic depression, uh, loss of identity, uh, trying to find a new place, a new identity, a new place in the world, a new identity for itself. Uh, on the background of this. 
world history's largest military bloc begins to expand to its borders. Uh, so I would say that the this was the the, the background cause, and in both and in, in this case, Ukraine is simply a tool. Ukraine is a tool for maximizing American and Western power. Of course, the Russians for the Russians, Ukraine is also a tool. It's a tool uh, as a buffer to keep the West from lining up along its western border. And so this is basically the problem. And then, and then both sides began to look for allies inside Ukraine to manipulate uh, uh, to manipulate um, uh, Ukraine. And so the West had the West had some advantages, uh, although it had a, a problem in that it was more distant and it didn't have uh, all the economic and social networks that exist between Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine as a as a result of uh, mm-hmm. them being in a single state called the Soviet Union for uh, seven centuries and even ties going far back. Um, they had an additional element. There was a small but you know substantial democratic, pro-democracy, pro-Western element in Ukraine, especially in Western Ukraine, that could be used and that could be expanded upon. So we be, they began uh, this democra, dem- democracy promotion, uh, revolution promotion uh, operations. And, and there should be no doubt that this is precisely what democracy promotion is. You can, I, I cite in one of my books from um, the Marine Corps Journal, an article written in which it explicitly states the goal of democracy promotion or uh, uh, operations is to create a, a crisis, instability, and a crisis in states that that again be used by the West to put people in power they support. Mm-hmm. Openly stated, uh, no problem. The other advantage that the West had is that there was the there were these uh, connections going back to the post World War II period uh, between um, intelligence agencies and um, diasporas in the West. And ethno-nationalists and neo-fascists in post-Soviet Ukraine, um, and they could use that element to expand the idea of uh, Russia's relationship with Ukraine, with Ukraine always having been imperial. Um, that Russia is the is to be blamed is to be blamed for all of uh, Ukraine's problems, whether it's the Ukrainian ruin or the uh, the Golodomor or or anything mm-hmm. else. Uh, and then the other element that we used was the oligarchs, and we simply uh, turned our our uh, turned our uh, backs on the problem of corruption. Even while we were, said we were promoting democracy, and we did very little to combat corruption. And relations were were developed between different oligarchs and different um, funding organizations, different political candidates in the United States. Um, uh, we have the, the the classic case, which everyone know. Well, <laughs> most people know about uh, at this point is the is the case of uh, Biden Hunter working with Burisma, right? A gas company formed by Kolomoisky and run by a guy named Zlochevsky, who both both people were were, were at one point uh, wanted by the United States, uh, both mired in corruption and and, and even criminality. So this was ignored. On the other hand, Russia tried to, of course, tried to use uh, whatever levers it had to maintain uh, its influence over Ukraine. So Ukraine would not be become uh, uh, a frontline state in the emerging new Cold War with uh, Russia. So they they used corrupt oligarchs as well. There's no doubt about that. Uh, they also used their gas supplies to help um, influence providing cheap gas to Ukraine. Uh, to keep uh, Ukraine close. Um, 
and and uh, but one thing that they could not do is they could not rely on the nationalists and neo-fascists by definition because of the the former Soviet experience, the anti-Russian, the Russophobic element of the nationalists, and and so that led to to some extent that was a disadvantage, and that was sort of um, the United States' own um, uh, comparative advantage, right? They could use that element, and that element became crucial on the Maidan, right? So you talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, the my the, you know Professor Ivan Kachinovsky of Ottawa University is the leader in this area. I've written a little about it, about it myself. The the fact that these uh, ultra nationalists and neo fascist groups organized uh, the shooting on on Maidan on Maidan in um, the nineteenth and twentieth of Feb- February, which led uh, led to a basically a violent uprising in the overthrowing of Yanukovych, where they where these elements stationed themselves in the Hotel Hotel Ukraine and other spots and fired on the demonstrators and the police, outraging the demonstrators, who then ran Yanukovych out of office. This is a terror, this is a terrorist act. It's a uh, false flag terrorist attack run by nationalists. I have not seen any evidence. Some people make the claim that the CIA, CIA was directly involved in this. I have never seen any evidence to support that. It's possible. No doubt about it, uh, but uh, I've seen no evidence to support that. I think my interpretation in my in my own book, uh, Ukraine Over the Edge, was that we uh, did what that article in the uh, uh, Marine Journal, uh, Marine Corps Journal, stated. Mm-hmm. We created a political crisis. That we used the NED, USAID, uh, the, the oligarch uh, Omidlar and Soros, and all these people funded a network of pro uh, market, pro economic pro-small business, pro-democracy, pro-women's rights networks across Ukraine to expand um, uh, the support for the West um, farther beyond Western Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that network was clicked on on February 20th after the shootings when, uh, I forget his name, uh, Naim, uh, the first name, the, the, the ethnic Afghan who lives in Ukraine, sent a message on Facebook telling everybody to go to the Maidan, to the square, Central Square, and protest the um, abandonment of the, of the association agreement. <laughs> One small note on the association agreement, and that led to the minor protest. One small note on the association agreement that demonstrates the way in which EU expansion leads to NATO membership is that there was a military clause. Most people, I don't, I haven't seen it noted anywhere else. Um, there was a military clause in the European association agreement with Ukraine that stated that Ukraine would develop its ties to the military infrastructure of Europe and the West mm-hmm. as part of the agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and one more, one more point on the on the Maidan that I wanted to get to in reference to what Glenn was talking about is that mm-hmm. you look at the the U.S. Um, the Helsinki Final Act. It states, I forget in which article it's in my book on Ukraine over the edge, that parties to the OSCE and the Helsinki Final Act are not to interfere in the internal politics of member states. Now, Ukraine was a member state. So is Russia. So is the United States. So are all the European states. So what were they doing on the Maidan promoting protests? Whether the protests against corruption were legitimate or not, and you know, the corrupt, and everybody has a right to protest against corruption, but that is interference in the domestic politics of a member state. Since the uh, since the Budapest Budapest Memorandum that many uh, in the West tried to cite as 
an example of Russia, of Russia violating agreements leading up to the crisis, like that Russia had um, by invading and and supporting the separatists in the in the in the east had violated the Budapest Memorandum. Well, guess what? <clears throat> the Budapest Memorandum is based on the Helsinki Final Act. So it was the West that violated the Helsinki Final Act before Russia violated the Budapest Memorandum. Um, so all this goes to it goes to simply say that both sides used Ukraine as a means. The Rus- the West did it in a far more aggressive far more obnoxious uh, form, especially given that the, the driver of NATO expansion, EU expansion is really the United States, which is located thousands of miles away from Ukraine, whereas Ukraine is on Russia's border and is a legitimate national security interest for Russia, given the history that I discussed and so forth and so on. It's not a surprise that we, we ended up in the situation that we're in now, and, and, and we just seem to be doubling down, right? Seem to be doubling down. We talk about inevitable NATO membership of Ukraine after this war is over. And so forth and so on. So it's a it's a really a a, a geostrategic um, disaster catas- catastrophe that it, that mm. threatens uh, world peace. I just add something very quickly on the Budapest Memorandum, uh, as it was mentioned, because this always comes up that you know Russia breached it because uh, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 uh, very explicitly said you know that the borders of Ukraine should not be changed, and you know the Russians. British Americans all signed under. So, of course, this is very reasonable. Uh, changing these borders, uh, as they did with Crimea, is uh, what well, was a violation of this. However, uh, there also has to be pointed out that the international law, uh, since you know the effort of establishing unipolarity, has been interpreted more and more, you know, according to this rules-based international order, which in the kind of the U.S. and its allies can take the freedom to. It, it, it shouldn't be restrained by international law because it has a higher obligation to liberal democratic values. So, for example, with the Budapest Memorandum, you know, you had three. Uh, identical memorandums to Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, you know, for uh, giving up their uh, nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, this had the, in the clause in this memorandum, you had the, uh, you know, one hand it said respect the independence and sovereignty of the existing borders of Ukraine, but also a very specific uh, paragraph where it says, you know, refrain from economic coercion designed to subordinate, you know, their own interests to the uh, interests of uh, Ukraine. And uh, also, uh, yeah, don't, don't undermine their security or sovereignty in any way through economic pressure or, or other means. So this was also very, very explicit. So, but but again, <laughs> by toppling the government, very much, uh, of course, a, a violation of this. But yeah. even the this was also breached when sanctions were, you know, threatened against Ukraine with the explicit purpose of undermining the government to support opposition. And since you know this, you know, a similar memorandum was uh, given to uh, was signed with Belarus. Um, you know, in 2013, the U.S. placed sanctions on Belarus, and uh, you know, the U.S. embassy in Minsk they 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 were accused of breaching uh, the you know the the Budapest memorandum, and their response was, well. It's not really binding. That was the argument, the Budapest Memorandum. And secondly, not only is it not binding, but it's not really intended intended uh, to undermine the sovereignty of Belarus. It was, 
just to protect human rights. So because it's motivated by altruism, you know, we don't want to undermine anyone's sovereignty or dictate their policy or interfere. We're just standing up for a democracy. Uh, in other words, we have the right to excuse ourselves from this memorandum. So, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, you know, wider problem, I think, in the relationship between the West and Russia is, you know, we kind of began to abandon international law, which based on mutual restraint, and we have now this rules-based international order where, you know, the restraints uh, are only meant for Russia and our adversaries, while, uh, you know, under the sovereign equality, we have the right to uh, breach all these agreements in international law because, you know, we can refer to democracy, human rights as uh, this higher or other objectives. So it just, um, it, my, 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 my point is uh, the United States and its allies as well breached this uh, Budapest memorandum many times uh, and then, you know, and then we only discovered this document, it seems, once the Russians breached it as well. And, you know, I've made this argument before to many people in debates, and they say, you know, pretty much, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. So, you know, it's, they're still breaching, which is, yeah, correct. But on the other hand, international law is about mutual restraints. You know, each side commit to limiting what they can do mm-hmm. in turn to get reciprocity. If you remove the reciprocity, why would Russia be restrained if we already said we're not going to be restrained by any agreements anymore? It's just uh, it's very strange. Sorry, I interrupted you, Alexander. No, no, I think that's a very important point. I'd be interested to hear what um, Gordon has to say. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead, Alexander. Then I'll... Then I'll, I, I'll no, I mean, all right. very, very, very briefly, I mean, this practice of discovering legality when it suits you and ignoring it in every other respect is absolutely one of the fundamental problems in international relations because mm-hmm. of course what it is doing is it is creating a completely chaotic international environment you can't just isolate one part of a do- of, of a legal treaty one part of a document saying one applies when it suits us another doesn't apply when it doesn't when it also suits us um all international legal documents all treaties work together as part of a continuum this is also something by the way which is fundamental not just to international law but to any type of law and of mm-hmm. course if it if an agreement and a treaty is an agreement at the end of the day if a treat if an agreement is violated in one of its fundamental particulars then that agreement becomes unenforceable and is a nullity. And that's a very well understood concept, again, in domestic law, and it applies to international law also. So this practice of, you know, replacing international law with, uh, you know, a, a unilaterally determined, arbitrarily applied rules-based international order is at the heart of many of these problems, including mm-hmm. the underlying problem that you were talking about, uh, um, Gordon, the point about mm-hmm. NATO, relentless NATO expansion. I, by the way, I can remember reading articles that you wrote long before this crisis in Ukraine began, warning people that NATO expansion is going to result in a major smash. I can remember it very well. And I just wanted, just on this topic of you know, applying uh, uh, legality when it suits you. I can remember, again, people were saying, you know, when Crimea 
uh, whether it was a referendum in Crimea and Crimea seceded from Russia. And again, you can argue many things about how that referendum in Crimea was conducted, what role the Russians had. But there was a specific point made by many people. I remember in the West at the time, in Britain especially, saying that the Ukrainian constitution pro prohibits secession. It prohibited Crimean secession. This mm -hmm. just a few weeks after the same people were supporting the overthrow of President Yanukovych, which was also, of course, a completely unconstitutional act. So they support mm -hmm. the Ukrainian constitution in one respect, don't worry about it too much, the other. Yeah. I think the, 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 this new pattern of uh, illegality or non-legality in the West, it, it's, 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 it's ironic in the first place because, uh, you know, one of the criticisms of the West already, always of Russia from the West of, of, of Russia has always been that Russia doesn't have a strong legal culture. Uh, you know, rules are made, are written to be broken. Uh, uh, the rule, rule of law state that they, we kept harping on for 30 years. And now routinely we see our, our uh, we see the West simply using law as a way to gain leverage, using the law as a way to gain leverage, um, and it's it's peculiar. I think it really is a result of this sort of uh, self righteous uh, attitude that everything that we do is altruistic. Therefore, if we bend the rules here a little bit there. Uh, that's okay because we're really uh, we're achieving we're we're seeking a a good end, and so if we use some not so good means, you know, whether it's a coup or a war or something like this, well, in the end, what we're trying to achieve is something good. Uh, therefore, we have a right to do it, and especially since uh, we have a, a, a not only and it's not only that we are doing trying to do something good, but that that we are actually better, right? Our culture is better. Um, uh, we're more sophisticated people, uh, more gentler people. We're kinder people. We therefore we seek good ends. The Russian culture is inferior; they're always seeking bad ends, and we have to confront them. And that's and 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 when that becomes the uh, overriding uh, structure within within which you operate, well, then the the law just becomes a hindrance. Uh, so when necessary, you just you just discard it. That's all. Uh, after the coup, though, uh, and uh, uh, between, I guess, 2014 and 2022, uh, do you see any struggle then between the, the what Ukrainians will want, if you will, or and what uh, and what uh, well, I guess what Washington wanted for Ukraine? Because, well, from my perspective, at least, what I've uh, what I picked up on a lot was. Uh, a lot of the interests in Ukraine to settle relations with with uh, with Russia and Donbas to to normalize relations. There seemed to be a strong impulse uh, in this direction. So, for example, as many refer to the election in 2019, you know, largely a peace platform to you know implement the Minsk Agreement. Uh, I, I thought it's quite surprising that. Both Poroshenko and Zelensky, for that matter, presented themselves as peace candidates. They were gonna, you know, they weren't gonna be nationalists. They were gonna, you know, reach out. They're gonna solve these problems, and then they had to. They were confronted by uh, American-trained and funded nationalists who effectively, you know, made them have to or forced them to to change their tune. Uh, uh, also, 
the former general uh, prosecutor of uh, Ukraine. He also complained, uh, well, he obviously was fired by Biden after this uh, investigation into Burisma, but he also had this uh, argument in which he in which he said that it wasn't just about firing him once he wanted to investigate Burisma, where Biden's son obviously got a job, uh, but it was also, uh, he argued that uh, that the Americans were essentially dictating all government employees within all areas, uh, who, who should get what job, and uh, that everything had to be approved by the Americans, which you know, he kind of referred to as a, a colonial status. And, uh, you know, at some points they went beyond this uh, when they were hiring, uh, you know, the new finance minister after the coup, you know, they just, they even put in an American, uh, I forgot her name now, yeah. Uh, Jarisco, oh, yeah, 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 she, she had been an American employee in the American embassy in Kiev. And yeah. then after the coup, instead of representing American interests in Ukraine, they gave her a uh, Ukrainian citizenship, and now she's represent. Now she's the finance minister representing Ukraine. And there's uh, many other examples of uh, uh, of American citizens, or you know, some um, uh, some Georgian, uh, Lithuanian citizens educated in the U.S. who were you know who were given citizenship and to take on top jobs, and the rest of them apparently, according uh, to Shokin, they had to uh, all other employees had to be approved by the Americans. So it seems very much. Uh, like they would, they weren't allowing Ukraine effectively to resolve its differences with Russia and continue these uh, hardline policies. Well, they certainly were trying to prevent them from. They were trying to, if anything, trying to exacerbate exacerbate those uh, differences, and that's why they uh, turned a blind eye and, in some cases, supported the uh, ultra ultra nationalists and neo fascists. Um, and the Minsk Agreement is a you know was a classic example. Of the, if you're talking about the United States, not not the West in general. Uh, the United States just uh, sat by and did nothing. There was no encouragement. There was no attempt to get involved in the Minsk agreement. Uh, uh, to the contrary, did everything to uh, to, to, to undermine it. Uh, Europe was involved in the in the Minsk agreement, but now they've all acknowledged that they should sim- simply used it to buy time. So, and this is all because the mage they had their eye on the ball. All the time they have the eye on the ball, and the eye of the, the the ball is NATO expansion. That is the uh, I, that is the key goal. And so anything that bothers uh, NATO expansion uh, to Ukraine, and probably again at some point uh, to Georgia, uh, is a hindrance and has to be uh, dealt with. Where do we go from here? We have a war going on. You've been following the war very closely. You've been also following the political situation in Kiev very closely. I should, by the way, encourage everybody to go to your site, which is, I think, an absolutely indispensable read for anybody who wants to know what is actually going on in Ukraine. The analysis and the reporting is outstanding. And I just wanted you also briefly to mention, there's been a court case. You mentioned Ivan Kachanovsky's work. There's been a court case about the Maidan events. But where do we go from here? We've got a war. The war, there was this offensive in the summer. That didn't go terribly well. You've discussed the developments within the Russian military. You've also been a very astute and critical observer for many years of the political situation in Moscow and how it's playing out there. Um, what's going to happen to Ukraine? 
And this is an enormous question, and it's just maybe a start to this. What's going to happen to relations between the Russia and the West? I mean, what are the Russians going to decide about their relationship with the West? Because they're an important player. They're an important decision maker also. Uh, well, I'm I'm very pessimistic about U.S.-Russia relations unless there's a you know, major change in attitude in the United States. And that can probably only come about by some major shock, whether it's uh, defeat in, uh, the, the defeat of uh, Ukraine in this war, some other defeat, the uh, problem uh, may perhaps related to Gaza or some uh, domestic crisis that uh, cripples the country and gets people to start waking up. You know, the two things are are, are, are very connected. If we go back to what we were discussing previously, uh, the, the 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 demise of uh, uh, the in e illegal and non-legal and anti-legal character of behavior of the Western behavior, um, it's driven domestically, right? We see in the United States that the Biden regime and be or administration and NATO uh, Obama before before him uh, were undermining the rule of law, investigating journalists, using the FBI and and the and the justice. Department to um, discriminate, dis discriminate, and uh, against Republicans and so forth and so on. The uh, impeachments of Trump, um, the ignoring of of, uh, of Biden's crimes, the cover up by by the media of all these things. There's a, a, there's a there's a decline in all the Western, in you know, in the Western institutions. Now we're seeing what's going on in Poland, um, uh, where they, they seem to be imitating what's going on in the West, going after the political opposition. Uh, same thing in Germany. There's discussion of going after what is the IDEF. Uh, Alexander talked about it yesterday on his program. So there's a decline in the legal culture and the constitutional and democratic political culture in, in the uh, in the West. So if Ukraine, so we take Ukraine, right? Here's Ukraine. Uh, they're losing the war. My guess is what's going to happen is there's going to be a very, very gradual acceleration of um intensification of the offensive that the russian that of the active defense which is now is a what's the new term you're using now alexander which i think is uh, a, aggressive attrition aggressive attrition uh i think that's going to be gradually become uh, more successful in that you uh more and more territory will be taken each month m many more square kilometers uh a few square kilometers more each month through the winter and then the spring. And then the big question is, what happens uh, in the interim? Will Russia decide to turn that gradual success into a major offensive or some major, uh, say, um, small uh, offensive, say, in in, in Kupiansk or somewhere into Sum Sumy and uh, Chernigov? Um, that's the other question. And with, will they do that in the summer or will they do that in the winter? They're not going to be able to do it in the spring because of the uh, Rasputitsa. So... Um, in terms of a winter offensive, you know, we're beginning to another month or so we'll be already begin to be running out of time. Um, but I think either way, there's going to be major gains by Russia this year. And by the, I, I would be personally surprised if, um, this war is going on in any intensive, uh, at any intensive level, uh, a year from now that mm -hmm. either there either has to be a coup in, in Kiev, which leads to. Unless Zelensky somehow changes his mind, which can't be excluded, but highly unlikely, some kind of a coup uh, in Kiev that 
that is, uh, if we think back to the recent revelation of, of the video audio tape of Poroshenko talking with uh, Akhmetov, former President uh, Petro Poroshenko talking with the oligarch uh, Renat Akhmetov, telephone call that was um, a rare bugged and there was a tape released on the internet. He claims that the, the military is behind him. And one of the reasons he, he explains to Akhmetov why we have to undertake this coup is that the Russians will not negotiate with, with Zelensky. So that indicates that those who might engage in a coup are thinking about coming to power in order to put an end to this war, or at least to create a frozen conflict that later they might try to restart again at some point uh, when the circumstances are different. Um, so I, I, given the military, the correlation of forces on the battlefield, I can't see how a year from now, unless something changes drastically and NATO does, decides to do something, um, Ukraine and Kiev, Kiev is able to fight. And so before then, I think there'll be a coup if Zelensky does not decide to uh, begin some kind of talks. And he's got a major problem because he adopted that law, which <laughs> forbids anyone with, <laughs> from negotiating with Putin. Uh, so the first thing he has to do is tip his hand, right? Uh, or he's got to violate that law. He's either got to begin secretly negotiating with Putin, or he's got to have that law repealed, which will then let everyone know that he's planning to negotiate with Putin. Of course, he conceivably could do that all in a day or two, but getting something pushed through the RADA very quickly like that, I think, is going to be extremely difficult, okay. given the, the arguments that he's he's making uh, when he travels abroad about Russia preparing to attack the Baltics and, uh, and Western Europe, and soon they'll be in London and Washington, D.C. So I'm exaggerating, of course. He's only talking about the Baltics and Moldova, I think, is what he mentioned recently. Um, so I think the situation in Ukraine is... Uh, and and that's kind of a good scenario. I leave out the worst. The worst part of that scenario is that there's some kind of a coup or breakdown in Kiev, and the army dissolves. There are partisan groups. They retreat to the western part of Ukraine beyond the Dnieper. Uh, at some point, partisan group, groups might might remain in the east and fight for a while. And there's really no one to negotiate with. Russia has no one to negotiate with. Because the country's in chaos and there's no major force. Then Russia's got a big problem on its hands because they've got to deal with this quagmire. They've got to deal with putting down an insurgency. That insurgency might be backed by NATO. Probably will be backed by NATO. Uh, and um, that's my worst case scenario. That's, and, I, I, and I fear that that's actually, it's too possible for us to be able to sleep well at night. Yeah. It's an extremely dangerous option. So my preference would be, quite honestly, that Zelensky would change his mind or that a military coup will be successful, be able to hold things together, and then they'll go negotiate um, and negotiate with the Russians. So assume they come to some kind of agreement, no NATO membership for Ukraine, uh, a rump Ukraine, maybe if Odessa remains part of Ukraine, they still have access to the sea, which is going to help rebuild the economy. I think the I think the Russians would settle for that if 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 uh, if it happens soon enough, and they aren't pushed further, they would be willing to leave Odessa uh, in Ukraine. Maybe create some kind of joint uh, uh, over uh, over uh, oversight of you of, of Odessa and the port, something like that. Maybe that's possible. Um, in terms of U.S. Russian relations, uh, uh, Western Russian relations, I'm. I mean, I'm extremely pessimistic. I don't even, even I can't even see that even if an agreement was uh, made between Russia and Ukraine, 
that the West will cease trying to expand NATO. They will they'll try to repeat the same scenario unless mm. something changes in the in the West itself, in, in Washington, D.C. in particular, because it's just simply too ingrained in our political culture and now in our strategic culture that we uh, promote democracy, revolutionism, color, color revolutions. This is our destiny. It's rooted. It goes back to Thomas Jefferson years after the revolution, believing that, you know, the French Revolution was going to spread democracy all over the, the world. And initially he supported that until he saw what the French were doing. Hopefully, if he were alive today or if he's watching from his grave, he would at what we're doing. He would condemn he would condemn that. Certainly, George Washington would. Um, so uh, I can't see I can't see any levers other than, you know, arms control, things like that. Sort of the Cold War, the late Cold War model of arms control. I can't see any way in which it's going to be even uh, opening up travel again between um, Europe and Russia. I have my doubts for at least a couple of years after any kind of agreement that will be signed, assuming an agreement is signed. I'm very pessimistic. I just don't see it. Um, Putin has stated over and over again now recently, and the, the elite routinely demonstrates they don't trust anyone in the West anymore. Mm-hmm. So oh, I think it would need a major Western mea culpa. That is a Western leader, a Russian uh, American leader, maybe a German leader, but preferably an American leader, uh, making a trip to Moscow and in perhaps somewhat veiled language, but language that the, all the Russians would be able to read, stating that we've been carrying out a very bad policy since the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And that policy is going to end, and we're going to seek, seek cooperation with Russia. That is the only way I can see anything changing, unless by some miracle there's some, you know, there's not going to be any democratic uh, pro-Western revolution in the in in Russia, because uh, Democrats have been de- Democrat pro democracy forces have been defeated by by their own uh, stupidity, their own divisiveness, uh, their alliance with the West, uh, under undermining their own um, patriotic uh, uh, credentials, and um, you know the soft uh, the soft uh, authoritarianism of Putin, which could be much harsher uh, if, if if he chose to. All that has basically erased any hope of any kind of pro-Western forces coming to power. So, and there's certainly not going to be any kind of coup against uh, Putin. The only, the only possible opening is that uh, you know Putin's getting older, and the entire regime really is based on Putin's charisma. Putin has, uh, among the Russians, even among Russians who you know are lukewarm as to some of his policies. Especially domestic policies. No, there are very few people who are lukewarm about his uh, foreign policy. Um, uh, it's very unlikely that uh, there's going to be any kind of a coup against uh, the Putin regime, Putinism, for any foreseeable future. Putinism is here to stay. Um, it's a long pattern in Russian history. If you look at it, through Russian history, there's a pattern of Russian foreign policy and domestic developments. Um, uh going through Syria going through cycles right where you mm-hmm. have a sort of a traditional Russian Russian regime um that establishes itself or reestablishes itself uh that means you know something based on orthodoxy authoritarianism of one sort of another soft mm-hmm. hard or soviet totalitarian uh version and then the west begins uh, then they begin some corner, some sort of liberalization uh, mm-hmm. westernization they do what the west wants them to do but at the same time, contrary to what Martin Malia wrote, 
so when the when the Russians actually begin to behave uh, the way we in the West would like them to do in terms of domestic uh, governance, it's then that the United States or the West or the, somewhere in the West begins to try to make inroads into Russia. This creates a conflict. Russia reacts, gets rid of the uh, Western threat, reestablishes the traditional order, and they go through the cycle again. And it repeats and repeats and repeats, really ever since the, the Smuta. Right, you had Boris Godunov, who was basically who was a, a sort of a mini Peter the Great. He sent uh, people abroad to study uh, the sciences. Um, he wanted to open a Western-style university. He encouraged people, not like Peter the Great demanded, he encouraged people to shave off their beards. And um, they were it was moving, sort of in a kind of Western direction. Uh, uh, and suddenly. The Poles begin to organize this uh, this uh, uh, hybrid intervention into uh, Russia to put the false Dmitri on the throne. Right? False Dmitri, the the alleged the alleged uh, uh, murdered son of uh, Ivan the Terrible, appears in Poland, gets support, mm-hmm. and they move into to create a force under false Dmitri's leadership. He's backed by the Vatican. He's supposed to Catholicize himself. He's supposed to Catholicize uh, Russia. He leads a force up through the very territory that we see now some of the war going on today, up through into from Poland into Russia, through Ukraine, and then up north towards uh, towards Moscow. Leads to chaos, Polish invasions, a Swedish invasion, uh, civil war, bandit groups all over Russia. This, by the way, could be the future of Ukraine <laughs> in a year or two. I shouldn't laugh, but uh, it's, it's sad enough. Um, uh, they establish, they, they throw out the poles, they, they reestablish order, they establish the Romanov dynasty. Hmm. Tradition is restored. Gradually, they begin a slow westernization. Peter then comes and engages in a major westernization. 18th century westernization continues. And what happens? The West backs a coup against, uh, against Paul I in the early 1800s. Um, Alexander comes to power, promotes a, promotes a constitutional project. By 1808, they were already drawing up a constitution that in 1810 was going to be promulgated and a Duma was to be set uh, uh, to, to, to uh, begin a session. Um, there, there were going to be uh, limited uh, popular elections to the Duma, various estates, the, the, the top two estates were going to be able to vote. And what happens? Napoleon. Three times during Alexander the first um rain uh the prop the preparation for a constitution was interrupted by uh, the Nabo- napoleonic wars then you have world war one the germans after the russian revolution the kerensky provisional government comes to power there's a good chance that that government would have become a more or less stable republican government hmm. what happens <laughs> the germans continue fomenting revolutions supporting lenin and the bolsheviks and trotsky the Bolsheviks seize power, seize power, end of that democratic experiment. Perestroika, Yeltsin, NATO expansion. Mm-hmm. And the process yeah. repeats, repeats, repeats. Yeah. It seems to be, um, I'm wondering if some of this cycle is being currently broken, though, because uh, uh, obviously it's yeah, from the 19th century, it also <laughs> surprised me how how many times that uh, uh, liberalization process was disrupted. But uh, but, but under Peter the Great, uh, this objective of uh, 
westernizing uh, Russia, uh, making more uh, yeah, European. This was uh, this was uh, seen as uh, yeah, the other side of the coin of modernizing. So if you're going to modernize the country, you have to change. That's why they have this cultural revolution. You have to change the culture. You have to become more European. Shed your past and uh, and uh, but. But this is something that always happened in Russia, though. If you want to develop the economy, become more competitive and modern, uh, you know, you have to become more Western. And it always had this dilemma, because if it fails to become more Western, you will have like the Crimean War, uh, when it will be too underdeveloped and it will risk being defeated by, you know, then the French and the British. So, but what seems to have happened now is uh, uh, this... uh, idea that the modernization uh, equates to westernization this seems to have been broken to some extent indeed when you mm-hmm. see that the russians uh, when they want to modernize now be it their industries their technologies uh, the financial system uh, tra- uh, transportation corridor banking and whatever it is it, it to a large extent means to decouple a bit more from the west because they see well, what you alluded to, this excessive dependence on the West, something that makes them vulnerable to this uh, intrusive intervention. So, so you know, if you see, well, what do they want to do now? How do they want to modernize? Well, technological partnership with the Chinese, develop, uh, you know, uh, cooperative industries with the Indians. Uh, they're having now, you know, the common payments with the Iranians. They, this is... Uh, it's more about this uh, Eurasian project, which is uh, right. very different from the past. And that's why I'm also wondering if Putin disappears. Uh, you know, when he was supposed to step down last time, you know, you had uh, Dmitry Medvedev who came in. He was, you know, very pro-West. He was going to be much more liberal. But look at him today. Uh, Medvedev is one of the large, biggest hawks. I think only this week he... He implied that Russia should attack Ukraine with nuclear weapons. I mean, he's, uh, and, you know, he says pretty much there's no future at all with the West anymore. We have to, you know, cut ourselves loose from this cancer pretty much. So it's very, the language is very, very strong. And I I, I, I can see that Putin's better ability to, to bring together the whole society and political system. Uh, yeah, charisma to a large extent, but... Uh, and this might be problematic, but I'm just—I'm not sure what a pro-Western mm. policy would look like because we would not—we would not welcome them into the West. We would not give up on expanding NATO towards their borders. So even if we, you know, resurrected uh, Yeltsin from the dead, what, what, what would he do? I don't think. I think this. Uh, I never. I don't think we conceptualize properly what Russia, pro-Western Russia, would look like. It seems to be. You know, to sit in the corner in perpetual weakness and do as it's told. Is uh, I, I just, I, I we, we write so many papers about anti-Western Russia that I, I would like to find out what pro-Russian, uh, sorry, pro-Western Russia would look like, though. Right. Well, why wouldn't a pro? Uh, why wouldn't a pro-Western Russia look like, say, uh, Germany, a powerful European state, right? That's allied. That that's friendly with the United States. Um, I, I don't see what, or or even a, 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 a French model where where the where uh, Russia is a little bit more independent, a little bit uh, a little bit more of a maverick and a recalcitrant in following, um, say, an American line. Uh, the fact that if Russia were part of, say, by some miracle, a member of NATO or the European Union, right, immediately the American presence in in the West, and that's what I think in part drives NATO expansion, would be reduced. Right, Europe would become 
Europe would become truly an e equal part, partner in, the, in, 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 mm. the, in the Western project. And I think that's the problem. But going back to what we, we were, you were talking about the beginning, about well, the, turn, the turn to Eurasia and to, to Asia. So that's precisely what's going to break the cycle now is that for for Russia now it looks like and it's at least it looks for me <laughs> to me like for decades uh the west is no longer it's uh, it's other the, uh, the it's no longer um remember i mentioned earlier the idea that the, the russia and the west have this um, perhaps this most problematic terms of uh, relationship in in on the international scene right and this but this has been uh, you know uh, it's been a complex relationship the west russia wanting to be like the west in some ways uh, then undergoing a security uh, problem with the West, moving away, but still wanting to be part of Europe, seeing the European lifestyle, seeing European science, uh, seeing European power as as admirable. The Europeans trying to entice Russia into its alliance games throughout European history, trying to entice Russia to imitate its culture and its science and its political systems and economic systems and so forth and so on. And Russia always being drawn in because Russia wants to be like it, then being just... Mm -hmm. Russia always has identified itself, measured itself, motivated itself, driven itself to revive itself uh, in relation to Europe. Now Putin basically is turning away from that. He said that we are no longer to define ourselves, look at ourselves through the European prism. We are going to, we'll, at a minimum, we'll be equidistant from Europe and Asia. But for now, given the situation, we are going to put all of our all our eggs in one basket, and that is Eurasia, and Eurasia, and even beyond with BRICS into mm -hmm. uh, the entire international order. It's not just Eurasia and Eurasia, and the West can sit there and um, cause us problems, and we'll do our best to to beat them off. Uh, maybe at uh, some some time in the distant future, uh, things will change in the West, and then we can discuss how we're going to improve our relations. Uh, um, that's the situation. So the other this this tight. Uh, uh, bilateral uh, relationship of, of 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 Europe as Russia's other uh, is ending, and therefore the cycle is probably going to be broken because that's really what fed the cycle, right? Without this constant back and forth between being European, not being European, being threatened by the European <laughs> Europeans, not being threatened, and now that's basically gone. Now there's just a threat. There's very little. There, the desire may be that we want to have a European living standard, but you can find that living standard say, in other places in the world now. You don't don't just find it in Europe. So that's mm -hmm. that's gone. And then add in the fact that you mentioned is that the authoritarian regimes right now are showing that if they, uh, you know, if they play their cards right, they can actually modernize um, without undertaking some of the uh, risky. Uh, measures such as democratization and so forth and so on that can destabilize the society. You know, maybe maybe later on they might democratize when when they feel they've got you know, according to the democratization theory, right? You got a if you got a large percent of the population that's middle class or above, then you know there's a, uh, there's reason there's a, uh, a democratic regime might be um, be able to support itself. But the, the problem is getting there. It's making the the so called they use the keyword the transition, right? Making the transition. I, I'm not saying that, that this has to happen. I'm not trying to make mm -hmm. a value judgment on um, democracy or, or authoritarianism. From my from my point of view, uh, different countries have different cultures. You know, within a certain mm -hmm. certain parameters. I mean, uh, there are certain things that go beyond the pale, like Hitler's Germany mm -hmm. and 
whole pot and so forth. But, you know, if a certain country wants to have a semi-authoritarian, a soft authoritarian regime, that's their business. That should be the American mm. attitude. And moreover, the American attitude always has been our way, the democratic, Republican way, free markets is more effective. That's why we win. So we should be glad. <laughs> <laughs> we should be glad if all those other, other idiots want to be authoritarian. I'm not saying mm. there is. From my point of view, I'm expressing the American point of view. But if those clowns want to be authoritarian, be ineffective, fine. We'll continue to be the world's leader. We can mm. put it on the Internet, you know, uh, our ideas about democracy, say it's more effective. Why don't you try it? Uh, we'll help you maybe a little bit, but we're not going to go in there and start fomenting uh, opposition groups and opposition movements. But I think we... Sorry, I think sometimes we create this the binary. Russians, I think the no. Russians would be happy would would be happy with that kind of an approach. Yeah. Oh, sorry for interrupting. I was just going to come. No it sounds like this. Yeah, often we see this binary approach where we say, you know, liberals mm. are very efficient, while authoritarians are, you know, we put them in the box of Mao or Stalin. But mm. but I think often, uh, at least the Chinese, they're looking more. They they want to develop as Singapore. So <laughs> not, not not very democratic at all. But uh, again, uh, economic mm. powerhouse. I want to yeah, ask you, well, Alex. That was my point. I wasn't trying to put poo poo no. the authoritarian. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah. you know, if they can be effective at doing it and that's their way and they have a more uh, communal culture versus a pluralistic culture, a more culture that, that, that wants consensus and doesn't want conflict contention, fine. That's their culture. Let them do it. And if they're successful, great. Let's compete and let's trade and let's be friendly. Hmm. What's this? What's this uh, messianic passion about spreading democracy and forcing it on people and causing revolutions and instability around the world? I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And I'm an American, right? I just don't understand. But I meant I explained it before. It's part of our culture, unfortunately. We've yeah. got to get off it. We've got to forget about that. Alexander, do you see any hope of, uh, or how how would you envision any future between? Russia and the uh, West and uh, yeah, in, in, including Putin because I, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting what uh, yeah, Gordon Hand was pointing oh. out because I, I, I framed this as well as a three, you know, because Russia has been very Western-centric 300 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you said, it mirrored itself in the West, either as a friend or a foe. But uh, since Peter the Great won in the Great Northern War against the Swedes, it, it's been 300 years of his mm -hmm. foreign policy in the mirror of the West. So, but now... Effectively, what they're saying uh, is, you know, we, we don't want to be pro-West or anti-West. We just, we want, you know, the West to matter less. We don't want to focus too much on this. So, you know, our focus should go other directions. But if this is the direction that Russians are going, and also in Europe, at least, we don't seem to have want to have any relate. We don't even want to talk to the Russians anymore. What, yeah. well, what kind of future do we have? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I just... I, just, I, I, I mean, this has been most interesting discussion. I just, this is what I'm simply going to say is this. What both of you are saying, that we might be seeing the end of this cycle of the Russians trying to be Europeans, finding that the West, the Europeans are fund, essentially hostile to them at some level and at some point reverting to a more Russian-style system, that that cycle might be ending is something that the Europeans themselves haven't understood at all. It is going to come as a profound shock to them. Still, when you read commentaries, political commentaries, political speeches in 
Europe especially, I think in the United States also, but even more perhaps in Europe, there is still always that underlying assumption that sooner or later, one day, the Russians will come back. They'll come back to us because, as before, there is ultimately no alternative to us. We are the more superior civilization, the gentler, the kindler, the more sophisticated one, or the ones that um, um, Gordon was saying, and we are the only path towards modernization. If it suddenly dawns on people on the West, in Europe, that that isn't going to happen, that Russia is going its own way, that it's part of a global system that is much more complicated and very different from the very Eurocentric and Euro-Atlantic system that we've always known. As I said, I think the United States can adjust to that. I think the Europeans, some of the Europeans, are going to find that incredibly difficult. But over time, as you know, time moves on, as the Europeans themselves begin to adjust to this situation and we're talking about you know an event that uh, is going to be very prolonged um it might actually end up providing the basis for a better more stable relationship because if we no longer have this sense of superiority to the russians this sense that you know they're uh, basically you know the uh, peasants in the east that have to learn from us and they have to reorganize their society in the way that we want if we start to see them in a completely different way as part of a global system in which they play an important part and they themselves are a modern advanced country in many respects and we lose that sense of superiority over them then finally at long last, we might be able to accept them and accept them as what they are and find means of living with them peacefully, because that's been the problem. We've never found a long-term way of coexisting with the Russians in a stable and peaceful way. Either we've had, well, we've had brief moments of relative friendship, but this has always been based on assumptions of Western superiority, or we've had long periods of stretches of cold wars and tensions, and sometimes we've had absolute armed conflicts like the one we're having now. Yes, it's um, yeah. I always I, you you wonder why. Um, I mean, John Mearsheimer, I know he's he's written about you know the tragedy of great power politics, and. And probably it's something that uh, is rooted in something even deeper. It's, it's, it's a tra I hate to get too philosophical, but it's the tragedy of human existence, right? I mean, there's ambition, um, uh, lust for money, power, and so forth and so on. On the individual level, that tends to drive this on the uh, on the on the national level. And when you when you get a to the status of a great power. Uh, suddenly, you often find that you can't stop. If you're the lone superpower, you can't stop, and you need to you need to uh, maximize power to the hilt. And um, the result is is, is often tragedy. A tragedy. Um, and I think that that's uh, maybe that's the problem. The question is, why is it always with Russia? And then you get into more of a geopolitical geopolitical uh, explanation, right? That is geography and so forth and so on. But you would think that human uh, mm -hmm. that human common sense would be able to overcome mm -hmm. 
this simple simple geographic <laughs> problem, right? Which is compounded by the the moral problem. So it's a very difficult thing. I, I'm just going to finish with this, and this will be my, I think, my, my my last point, which is the fundamental problem with Europeans, is that we want to be, we want Russia to be European ultimately, because, you know, this is this vast country, it's this huge territory. We understand at some level that Russia is part of Europe extends Europe, makes Europe stronger. At the same time, we don't want Russia in Europe. <laughs> we don't want the Russians to be there in Europe because there's too many of them. They're too big. The country is too vast. Um, and it's too different in too many ways. So we've always had this very strange relationship with the Russians. On the one hand, we want them to be with us. On the other hand, we want to keep them away as, dis as distant as possible push them as far from the core regions of Europe as we can. And what we're going to discover is that the Russians are actually going to sort of distance themselves. And that will be fine. They won't want to be with us. And, you know, ultimately that might actually, one can't just about see how, you know, 10, 20, 30 years time, that might actually make things easier Um for this yeah, relationship between the Russians and us. I agree. If both sides begin to shed their other complex, right, to abandon this obsession with the other, maybe, uh, and spread out, uh, you know, around the rest of the world and begin to develop relations, mm -hmm. maybe, in fact, uh, we can come back and meet each other uh, with uh, in a more calm state with better intentions. Yeah, no, you, well, <laughs> A strong parallel can be drawn there because that was the issue with Peter the Great when he wanted to completely cleanse, you know, Russia of its uh, eastern Moscovite past to become more European. You know, how did the Europeans respond? Oh, wonderful! You got this. Russians want to become Europeanized, but they're still not properly European. So we still don't want them in, but we we want them to want to come in, but we don't want to let them in. And that's kind of Yeltsin era as well. Like they were willing to ignore their relations with the former Soviet republics, China. Everyone just to get to the West as soon as possible. This was a great time, because if they want to come to the West, we can set conditions. You know, they're knocking on the door, but we don't really want to open the door. And uh, But now, I guess, we, we really pushed the uh, Russians into Asia. It just happens to be at the one point in history where uh, power is shifting from the West to the East. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think both uh, some benefits, but also uh, some negative outcomes at least for Europe's relevance in the world, uh, I think will uh, decline as a result of this. Uh, any final comments before we wrap this up? Uh, it's been a wonderful program. Gordon, let's have you back, please. That would be great. I would be glad to do it. It was a lot of fun. I don't get mm. to talk with my uh, colleagues very often, so it's uh, a great pleasure. Yeah. And uh, great to meet both of you guys. Thank you.